0: Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now, here's your host, Jeff
1: Concepcion.
0: Jeff Concepcion is solely an investment advisor
1: representative of Stratus World Partners and not affiliated with LPL Financial. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.
0: Brian Hamburger and Market Council are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion, and welcome to the Evolving Advisor podcast. Really thrilled to have someone well known in our industry and also very well respected, Brian Hamburger, who is the founder and president, CEO of Market Council Consulting, also chief counsel to the Hamburger Law Firm. I'm sure you have, as I have on a number of occasions, attended the the Market Council Conference, which is tremendous, a lot of leading industry thought. We're going to get a great look behind the scenes today with Brian, who I envision is an entrepreneur, obviously an attorney, a consultant. He's done a lot of writing and speaking, and is really well-known in the industry as he's shepherded advisors and firms, exploring and understanding independence, as well as the transaction side of business and even the regulatory environment. So with that, Brian, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: What you've got going on, I'm not sure where we should start. Maybe we'll start at maybe the crux of one of the things that's been important to us. In growing our business, talk a little bit about that—the uh, employment side of things and maybe the landscape. I think your firm has got a great reputation in helping advisors who are contemplating a move from any form of an employee model to independence. What are some of the trends and some of the things that you're seeing there?
1: Yeah, uh, certainly, and, and I think you, like many other firms, are dealing with it right with you know not only the you know the labor crunch that we're seeing, but so many of the trends that are going on in the space. The independent wealth management firms have really grown up, right? So we started, you know, if you go back 22 plus years ago, you know, we started making a name for ourselves, uh, really helping shepherd advisors out of captive employment and over to their own firm. And that was kind of the, you know, that was the path that we, uh, you know, that we really wanted to wanted to fortify. But several years ago, uh, we noticed a trend that we simply couldn't ignore anymore, which is that uh, those pioneer firms, like your own, uh, have uh, have their own distinct needs, right? They were starting to get really good at recruiting advisors, and they were creating a solid option to to an advisor going out completely on their own. There was a real value proposition there, and so we took our what we call our transition intelligence program, which is our planning program, and we we effectively turned it inside out and started working with firms such as stratos to to help them recruit and pull in talent from captive employment but do it safely and within the risk parameters that, that each firm deemed acceptable we are you know we're seeing that as one of the fastest growing areas of our practice but most notable is it's less a practice about the enforcement of restrictive covenants as it once was and more so it's about It's about clients' personal data uh, making its way out of the registered firm and over to, to the new firm, how to do that effectively. It's about messaging, you know, in this era of LinkedIn and, uh, and other social media. The hot buttons that we're dealing with today were not the hot buttons of yesteryear. And uh, as you see the regulations that are evolving, uh, particularly in states like California, I suspect that that practice area will continue to be busy for the foreseeable future
0: so as you talk about the exits from firms where folks are moving from employees to business owners i think most folks probably understand the landscape relatively well of protocol firms but two of the big guys in the last half dozen years have moved to remove themselves from protocol I, i wonder if you could just speak at a very high level generally speaking what that's meant as an example for folks who had the benefit of protocol and no longer do? Are you seeing successful moves and what do best practices look like in that regard?
1: So There's no such thing in this country as indentured servitude, right? Everyone has options. And even if they have significant restrictive covenants, we're talking about non-solicitations, non-competes, non-acceptance of the business, non-hire, right? All of these things fall under this bucket of uh, this header of restrictive covenants even if they have those in place right that business remains portable albeit under different circumstances so as i think everyone knows the broker protocol is what we refer to as a limited forbearance agreement uh, firms that are participants in the protocol they have they often have contracts with their employees that give them the right to restrict them however if their employees go to another protocol member firm and follow the protocol, right? which is what people often skip, then those firms have a uh, those uh, those covenants. So what broker protocol does is it gives firms a relatively clear lens upon which to evaluate the move, to have some really good predictability, high degree of predictability as to what they can expect if they follow all of the rules. And I continue to say that because Sometimes people forget that. So it's just like when my kids were younger and I would say, if you clean your room, we'll go for ice cream. They forgot the, if they just remembered we're <laughs> going for ice cream. Uh, so, so I, I want to ask uh, you, did, did you ever buckle in that regard? Cause you loved them and took them for ice cream or did we? I did. The... Okay. All right. I, did. I come on. I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, right? We all buckle in that regard.
0: Maybe, yeah. maybe they clean it up afterwards. Cause they're grateful for a good <laughs> ice cream. So.
1: Oh, they'll clean it up afterwards and, and probably owe me a little more, oh, but boy. you know, the, um, So the issue with the non-protocol firms is there's often less predictability. And so unfortunately, people that are leaving those firms are often leaving based upon anecdotal evidence, right? They're saying, oh, this person in my office left six months ago. This is how it looks like they did it. I'm going to reconstruct that and I'm going to go that way. And so problems ensue, right? All of a sudden, we're reading articles in Advisor Hub about a transition that's gone badly. Uh, I like to tell our clients and, and prospects that every single article you've read in Advisor Hub about an advisor transition was avoidable in time, uh, but this is all about ardent planning. Uh, we obviously have intel about the performance of firms over time. What are they likely to enforce, and uh, and what are they likely to monitor, and and how can we how can we quickly uh, negotiate an acceptable outcome, and so we can help set. Those parameters for uh, for clients, but I want to reiterate the initial point. There's no indentured servitude, right? Anyone who's working in a captive employment model, a W-2 model for a firm, has the ability and the wherewithal to leave. It all depends upon what circumstances uh, they're willing to leave under and how much risk they want to assume. So, similar to financial planning, right? It's a plan. So we we need to understand their needs, goals, and objectives. We need to understand um, their appetite uh for uh for risk and we can then plan accordingly and then work with them on the execution of that plan
0: yeah that all makes good sense i don't want to go down a rabbit hole but i do have a specific question i think in all but a handful of states a tombstone is not considered a solicitation it's considered more a notice um do you find those effective then i've
1: got a sort of a specific question about a written
0: versus an oral
1: tombstone i'd love to hear your thoughts on yeah, so I think it's a bit of a misnomer, right? You know, there there's simply not enough case law in most states, right? We have, you know, many of the states on the coasts uh, have well-established case law uh, about, uh, you know, what really uh, constitutes a solicitation, um, but it's um, it's not as clear as that. But you do raise a point, which is one of the biggest differentiators that people often overlook is the state that's going to be used in uh, in enforcing these agreements. Um, state law, both the law rule regulation and case law varies greatly from, from state to state. So what may have worked with a, a group of advisors who have made this move in one state is not necessarily going to work with a similarly situated group that's, that's doing this in, uh, in another state. Um, so we have to look at the entire uh, plan, the entire communication plan, if it's only going to include A you know a a tombstone ad and if it literally is a tombstone ad placed you know in a newspaper somewhere that may be acceptable but if people then want to take the concept of a tombstone ad and say well I'm basically doing the same thing on LinkedIn where where I already have established connections with my you know with my clients you know that that may be over the line in uh, in certain states or it may not be well settled in in other states in which case we need to expect that uh, that we're going to have to argue that out. Yeah,
0: you bring up a really good point. That's sort of nuanced, right? When you think about a tombstone, it could be a general ad in a broad publication. It could be something through social media not- notifying of a change. And I think maybe the most targeted, and I suspect the highest risk of all of them, would be a tombstone letter that's going out specifically to you know folks who likely were prior clients. So
1: yeah, and that's and that's why it's hard to to answer anything in generalities um, because you know while the states are going to vary firms will also vary on uh you know on on what they perceive to be the case we often know where we can push the button the the biggest risk that we often take in these transitions is twofold number one it's it's that people don't execute right people you know anywhere we look whether it is regulatory cybersecurity people are often the weakest link and the same goes for employment transition um the plan can be a real sound one but if it's not executed with distinctness and specificity, we're likely to find failure there. It happens, you know, quite often. Uh, you know, the other thing is um, people will, um, will often leave chips on the table, right? And as an advisor, um, you, you probably get this, like it's hard for people to wrap their head around um, the, the, the foregone risk, right? It's easy to say, hey, this is the risk that we're willing to accept this is what we've done, and here's the outcome of those decisions we made, right? We were able to successfully transition X amount of, of assets over to the new firm. But what we never measure, uh, and what really should be measured, is how much we'd left behind, and did we need to leave that behind? So, in other words, did we take too conservative of approach in certain areas? And that's actually the second biggest risk in the transitions that we've seen uh, over the course of the last several years.
0: That's a great, great point. Um, a couple things one is having a plan and sticking to the plan and i can think of some silly stories over the years of having a well thought out exit strategy and then folks either intentionally or unintentionally deviating and things not going as smoothly as they could have but generally i I don't know what your experience is most advisors who are good advisors and sound advisors and providing a good experience to their clients the clients follow if they have the patience to say hey Certain folks may move during what you might refer to as a phase one, where we're really following the rules closely. Maybe there's a phase two, where non-solicits or non-competes expire and they can proactively reach out. I think in in most cases, folks are going to move the lion's share of what they want to move, if they're patient. Uh, It's laying out a good plan and sticking to the plan is is obviously important. So
1: Unequivocally, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, when we measure the success of these transitions over the long term, so going out over a year, we you know, our average rates are over 100%. And people say, well, how could it possibly be over 100%? Well, the story that these advisors are telling is often a very compelling one, right? It's often one that's been in demand from their clients for some time. And so they're seeing a, a significant increase in wallet share than they had before. But you're right. It's about patience, right? It's about facing this out. It's about making sure as transitions get larger and more complex, again, more people involved, it's really important to ensure that everyone is is operating in lockstep and in alignment with with one another because the success or failure of these transitions is often determined by the weakest link, right? And if you have someone who's very well-intentioned but maybe just very anxious and they decide that despite the... they're going to take a flash drive and they're going to hold on to that data or they're going to have another copy, they're not even looking at it, but just in case everything goes wrong, um, now all of a sudden we can't respond uh, with, uh, with certain affirmations or certifications that would otherwise have alleviated us of any type of, of dispute. Right? So it's always it's that weakest link we're concerned about. And it, you know, when we had one, two, or three advisors in a transition, that was manageable. When we're dealing with 20, 30, 40 advisors uh, in a single transition, that's a tough ship to navigate.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned something interesting too. And I really hadn't thought about it, but it's fresh on my mind. I did a workshop in Arizona a couple of days ago, and it was all successful women advisors. And each of the three ladies who presented, who've gone from some form of an employee model to independent, indicated that within 12 months, they had more than 100% of their assets, not 100% of their right. clients. They might have yep. brought 85 or 90% of their clients, but of the clients that did come, so many of them had assets of their places or were just thrilled that they were becoming business owners or liked the notion of the independent platform and the autonomy and the advocacy more than they did someone in an employee model, each one of these three ladies said that they had more than a hundred percent of their assets and revenues you know, a year in. So I'm glad you brought that up because I, I don't always think about that, but it's pretty compelling. And, and let's
1: be honest, right? Who wants all of their clients? I mean, my clients, of course, but, but I mean, if we're going to be honest, right, there's a, there's a culling of the book that is a natural <clears throat> process here and really healthy. Right, so if you have the ability to increase your assets with fewer clients, I think almost any advisor would take that trade.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So I think we we did a good job kind of scratching the surface on the employment consulting transitions, et cetera. about I assume that's on the hamburger law side. What you guys are seeing and what your experiences and and just some thoughts around that aspect of the business.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to. So uh, if I mentioned that our, the work we do on the recruiting side is the second big, uh, fastest growing area of our firm, business transaction continues to be the top growing area of our firm year after year. Uh, advisors, uh, independent advisors are enamored with the business transaction. When I say business transaction, it could be anything from a launch, but more specifically, it's often succession planning. It's the sale of a minority stake or it's the outright exit and sale of their firm. They're also enamored on the other side, right, with doing acquisitions or you know what are often referred to as aqua hires, right, which we call acquisitions, but they're really they're really recruits that we're bringing in as as a business unit. It's all over the place. I think the the biggest misnomer, the common uh, biggest common misnomer that we have is that the advisors are just chasing these headlines. Ah, uh, they're reading about how everyone's in on the deals. They're reading about how uh, multiples are at an all-time high. Uh, they're reading about uh, record deal flow and and all that despite maybe some of the recent pullback this year. Uh, you know there's there's a lot of hysteria around the market, and you know, and I, I tend to come as the real unpopular guy in these conversations and say, you know, number one, y- you as an investment advisor, uh, possess more skills than you can ever imagine in evaluating. These deals, right? You you really ought to be looking at your firm as the most concentrated securities position that you own. You should be analyzing it as a securities position. And investment advisors do that all the time, right? They know the value of a stock way more than uh, way better than I would know the value of a stock. Um, And it's interesting. I think it's kind of like the cobbler's shoes um, uh, type scenario where they don't apply that skill set to their own firm because it's so emotional uh, that, uh, that I think they, they have a bit of a, of a blind spot. But it's, uh, it's a great opportunity for advisors to start treating it as a concentrated securities position, hedging against that position, ensuring that the performance of that asset is consistently strong and disciplined, right? Because the time to think about a business transaction is not when you're ready to engage in the transaction. It's uh, it's years before, right? It's getting ready for that transaction, and so a lot of times people will come to us waving an LOI and saying, you know, letter of intent, saying, "Hey, we just executed this. We need you guys to paper this transaction." And I have to have these real basic conversations that should have been had months, if not years, ago, with them saying, "Wait a minute, I didn't even know you were looking to engage in a transaction. And what's your objectives? And are you ready to work for this firm? You know, following a transaction." So I think the hysteria has gotten the better of the M and A market in the independent wealth management space, which I certainly hope will settle down and we get a little more uh, logic to uh, to prevail. Uh, because um, you know, right now the parties seem a little intoxicated.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unwrap in what you said, and I, and I couldn't agree more. So advisors don't typically think about their business is a concentrated security and nor did it nor did it necessarily run these things in most cases like a business. They run it like a paycheck. And when they do understand that transition, and you know, this this is really the kind of the whole notion, the foundational notion behind the podcast is the evolution from an advisor to a CEO. It's thinking about it as a concentrated security, as a position, as a business that they're reinvesting in. One buddy from uh, my study group many years ago says he runs his firm quarter to quarter, building the story that at one day he would tell the marketplace if the business was you know up for sale. Um, That's right. Think, thinking about it with intentionality like a business, recognizing that uh, there's a lot you could do if you're thinking about selling the business years in advance to prep. Where do you invest? It's you know if you think about selling your home, you could sell it the way it looks today. Or you could have pristine landscaping and you know that putting money into, whatever, I don't know what they say, kitchens and bathrooms is going to yield a phenomenal return where other things might not. Where do you invest in your business that's going to yield a phenomenal return? Is it in staff, G2, talent? Is it in technology or efficiencies? But there are lots of things that they could think about and do proactively several years in advance that gives them something much
1: more appealing to sell you know, three years from now. So a lot of great points. Uh-huh. Well, no doubt. And You know, and it's all about starting with the objective in mind. Like if you know that eventually, even if it's 10, 20 years from now that you want to sell the business, well, start behaving that way now, right? Don't start, you know, don't try to get some personal expenses in there. Don't try to, you know, pay your home utilities or your easy pass, you know, through the business. Run it as if you you were reporting to to others. I just, I struggle with, you know, when there's a lack of logic i mean i speak to entrepreneurs all the time and they 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 tell me oh, i'm really excited we're going to bring on a minority investor and i said okay well you know what was your objective behind it and they said well just taking some chips off the table we think our growth over the next 3 to 5 years is going to be breakneck and you know we think it's going to go you know through the, you know to the moon you know in the short term and we wanted to get some you know some capital and you know i scratched my head and i said you're an investment advisor like have you you, have you visited a bank recently? I mean, because even within a rising interest rate environment, like it's still pretty cheap capital compared to bringing on a minority investor and often is devoid of a lot of the control covenants that even a minority investor may insist upon. So I'm not suggesting that I'm anti you know, minority investment. I just think it's one tool that fits certain circumstances, but people are applying it to a heck of a lot more.
0: Yeah. So that that brings up sort of an interesting question. I wouldn't call it a debate because there's not a right or wrong. A lot of times it has to do with philosophy and objectives. But if you're trying to raise capital for your business, you can have debt capital or equity, right? So even in this interest rate environment where people might be paying 8 or 9% versus 5 to 6% that they might've paid 18 months ago, and, and maybe in some cases, even more than that, I'm curious about your philosophy of Going out and acquiring books. Assume that you have the opportunity to do a transaction exclusively in cash, exclusively in equity, or some combination of cash and equity. What type of high-level advice do you have to that business owner about serving their interests, you know, long-term, the best?
1: So I'm going to uh, I'm going to disclose my bias in that I treat equity like gold. It's a one-way street, right? Once you once you give up equity, it's really expensive to to go out and reclaim it. Um, so, despite me running Market Council, a hamburger law firm, uh, and you know all of these businesses for the last twenty plus years, uh, I have never offered equity. Despite the fact that I have employees that I treat as uh, longtime partners, and, and I care very much about their input and contribution. What that means is that I need to I need to pay more in terms of compensation. Right? People often use equity as a tool uh, uh, to retain staff and to pay less than market because of the uh, of the equity participation if you really believe in the growth prospects for your firm you will be very very prudent about your distribution of uh, of equity if you however believe that your firm is going to grow at normal rates then i think it becomes a preference as to uh, do you want to use equity as a tool for growth or do you want to go out and uh, and take out Alone, right, and and uh, and put some debt on the business. I think the best businesses probably have a healthy mix of both, and they use them at the right times. Uh, but I think that people look at equity as free money, uh, when in fact it's not free because even minority investors in in this environment are insisting upon provisions that limit the ability of entrepreneurs to freely run their business. Um, so you know, when you look at at the terms that they're often asking for. The throwaway term is a right of first refusal, which means this minority investor who just bought ten or twenty percent of your business now has the ultimate say as to whether they want to acquire your business. What that does is not only does that give them that, but it also limits the other firms that would potentially bid on the other eighty or ninety percent of your business because they may not want to be in business with that minority investor, and they certainly don't want to just uh, you know create an environment to to bid up to bid up the price. But there's other provisions that they often put in there. They put in their provisions that, you know, you can't hire over a certain threshold, let's say 100K without getting their authorization, or, you know, there can't be any type of uh, new leases signed or new, you know, or significant new equipment. They'll, they'll pack these provisions in there. And so even though you, all you intended to do is take some chips off the table, you have limited your autonomy on day-to-day uh, business decisions. Um, and you've limited the pool of potential suitors over the long-term for your business. And that's obviously just one example.
0: Yeah, I think you made it really simple. And the biggest takeaway I have from that is when you think about how you're going to raise capital for your business, or how you're going to grow, or how are you going to acquire, if you're really, really bullish on what the long-term value of your enterprise could be, it's not always easy to use to justify the use of equity some will justify it by the way by saying that they're getting a premium on their equity because if i'm running a shop that's a billion dollars for example giving myself a an 11x you know implied value and i'm buying somebody who's got a hundred million in assets and we're giving them a 7x implied value you know i think you could say that you're getting leverage out of your currency by recognizing the size differential when you bring somebody in use and using equity as, as currency but there are different paths and philosophically right some people are diverse and uh, some folks like the idea of the alignment that comes from equity being exchanged. So I don't think there's any one path. But if there was a bias, I would probably tend to sit, and I have sat, you know, in your camp at least, in for as far as outside transactions, internally we have yeah. a lot of folks who happen to be, you know, probably close to a hundred of our folks who own equity today. But I think when we're dealing with the outside world, I've, I would, I'd have the same bias that you do. I'd, I'd look at debt financing even in this environment. So,
1: yeah, and I, and I agree. It's a different lens you need to look for internal transactions right so excluding those uh for a moment there's a slippery slope between what you just described where hey we can acquire this for you know for these terms and we think that we can amplify uh the valuation when they're part of our business there's a slippery slope between uh kind of economies of scale cost efficiencies and on the other side the greater fools theory right which is you know which is if we can accumulate enough assets we could just find someone who's willing To pay more than we paid for for that asset, and so you know, I agree. You start to get into lots of shades of gray here. It's probably not uh, the best topic to debate because I don't think there's an ultimate right or wrong answer. Right, Uh, but I think what we, I think what we just shook out here is that investment advisors intuitively have the skills to assess this. Right. I mean, all of the things we talked about. If you take out the fact that it's your asset, it's pretty easy for most investment advisors to be able to say, okay. Well, you know, this This investment can outperform, you know, a 7% uh, rate of return. So why wouldn't we just take out the money instead of using equity as a tool, right? I mean, intuitively, most advisors can do that exercise, but uh, but they don't.
0: Yeah. And you bring up a good point too. There, you, you hear all the time that someone's business premise is that five folks who have 200 million in assets are going to throw their stuff into a pot and now say that they're a billion dollar firm where anyone with a a reasonable amount of diligence on the outside sees that it's held together with paper clips and duct tape. And, you know, so is it really a company or is it really someone who's trying to arbitrage with scale, but not really running a tight buttoned up business? So, and there are other other folks who I have to give credit who've brought businesses together and integrated and created efficiencies and really turned them into a single firm, but others who are operating on that premise that bigger is simply better because it's bigger, which isn't always the case. So it's, it's an interesting interesting time.
1: Uh, yeah. And, and I will tell you, there is one absolute, which is, which is these assets are always worth more when they actually perform. Right? And what I mean by that is we, we've had a flurry of um, folks who are in a captive employment model who say they're going to de-risk the transaction by having, um, having a financing partner, a capital partner on the way out. Uh, and then they come to me and they say, wow, this doesn't seem like that great of a deal. Well, it's not that great of a deal because this is just a business concept, right? Everyone who's ever taken a shower has had an idea. Um, What's worth more is if you actually invest in your idea and you build it and you, you know, there's revenue, there's income, there's expenses, and, and then you sell it, right? Three, four, five years down the line. That has a higher valuation in every single scenario than someone with the concept of building that. And I think that's hard for people to wrap their head around.
0: Can we shift to market council?
1: We could shift wherever you like. This is your show.
0: No, well, you're in charge, buddy. You're in charge. So <laughs> so I. A lot of folks have gone from these employee models. Your team has helped shepherd many folks do that into becoming independent business owners. I would say one of the areas that most folks who go independent are sort of the lightest in terms of their intuitive or natural skill set is on the regulatory front. So you form an RIA and all of a sudden in smaller businesses, they may be doing a lot of the internal compliance work on their own. The larger the enterprise gets, the more they shift that to people with expertise. But I guess I'd love to hear just a few moments on what are your thoughts about, or big firms, what are the regulators looking for nowadays, and maybe what would be some advice that you would give to folks running independent firms or RIAs as relative to best practices?
1: Yeah, that's you know, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Uh, but the first thing I think we should make sure that people understand is that their sense of what compliance is when they're sitting within a captive firm uh, is just skewed, right? It's a very distorted vision because everyone uses the term compliance as a catch-all. Uh, but when you when you uh, when you're put in the seat of running a business, you have to you have to really uh, fine tune and turn up the contrast. You have to understand that. Compliance is regulatory compliance. It's, you know, we define that as a minimum baseline operational standard, right? That's regulatory compliance. You can never dip below that, right? You always have to comply or exceed uh, what the, re- what the uh, regulations uh, state. But then you have to be able to separate that out from risk mitigation. Also important and prudent measures for firms, and they get more important and prudent as firms, uh, as firms get larger, and then you have supervision and, and monitoring. When you're at a big firm and you're an employee at a big firm, everything's just under the compliance bucket. So it's understandable that you think compliance is just this unwieldy beast. Uh, But when you go to launch an RAA, most RAAs, if not almost all RAAs, I should say, um, have much and conflicts of interest profile than, than the firms that they're leaving behind. As a result, there are not as many concerns. Because you're not, you, there's not many places where you're at odds with the interests of, of your clients. So regulatory compliance is quite manageable. Manageable so long as you appoint resources to it and you're deliberate about your efforts. Not manageable from the perspective of just set it and forget it. It does require some effort, but it's not a real heavy lift. In, the, in this day and age, there are plenty of areas that are much more uh, difficult to manage than regulatory compliance. Um, I think, I think becoming an entrepreneur is about the art of spinning plates, right? People always love to ask, especially on these types of programs. They say, you know, what's the one thing? You know, well, the one thing is that there's not one thing, right? The one thing is that the best entrepreneurs uh, are out there ensuring that every functional area of the firm is performing well, um, and um, you know, and that's the biggest challenge. So when it comes to regulatory compliance. Um, it's all about process. It's all about business process and, uh, and then documenting that business process and creating systems that, that ensure that even if there is a breach or even if there's a failure, that there was a system in place and you had a, a, a mechanism and a method for addressing that failure. Um, and so I think people overblow uh, the importance of compliance. And then once they get comfortable I actually think they minimize the importance of compliance and I think it belongs right smack dab in the middle where it requires a consistency of effort but if you do that day in and day out it's not a heavy lift.
0: Yeah, that's really well said and you know you mentioned the one thing, you know what's the one thing that matters and there are lots of things that matter, the one thing that I was always concerned about, not for any particular reason other than I felt like you could get a lot of things wrong but one thing you can't get wrong is the regulatory, risk management and compliance side. And I, emphasis on that. I've never worried about growth. I've never worried about assets or profitability, you know, any of those things. What I've worried about is sort of what you don't know. I think the regulatory risk management aspects of the business are can be vast and topics change, priorities change from a regulatory standpoint. So I just think it's super important to recognize that most operators, it's not their core strength, and they just need to make sure that they're getting the best advice and having good processes in place, and then people executing on those processes. So,
1: yeah, I could have said it better. I mean, can you imagine if you were able to build a portfolio where you can assure yourself that you didn't sustain any losses in any positions in the portfolio, and you could you only then needed to focus on finding gains? Right, that would be the be a dream, right yep. for uh, for for most advisors. And so, the, to me, the best advisors ensure that they can mitigate uh, loss. And regulatory compliance is one of those areas, right? Uh, liability, risk mitigation. That, that whole bucket is, you know, where can we go wrong? And if they, if they shore that up and they put the right resources there and objective resources that can, that can help them, then they can start focusing on the things you talked about, which is, you know, which are great things, right? Like growth and the client experience and things that will help propel the business forward without fear, that one event is going to set you back or cause some type of, uh, of, of client embarrassment. Um, and so, you know, that's what we seek to do. You know, objective advice is, is helpful in many respects. It separates it from your own intentions. A lot of times when we're working with a client, even that's been in business for a while, we'll do an inventory of their conflicts of interest, one of the first exercises we do, and we'll say, well, what you're doing here, that creates a conflict of interest. They say, well, no, it doesn't. right? And then they tell us, all of their intentions, right? And how they care about their clients and they put their interests ahead of their own. Right? But this practice puts you in a conflict position. And these are then the things we do to mitigate that conflict of interest. And so it becomes a disclosable event. Without that objective advice, they just bypass that, right? And we do that with our own health, right? I mean, you go to the doctor and you say, I feel great. right? doctor says, Really? Because I'm looking at these numbers and they're not so great, right? You need someone objective in these professional areas. To tell it to you like it is, and for and to look at it through an objective lens, and then prescribe what exactly is going to remedy uh, that that gap and that risk.
0: Yeah, that's that's really the definition of a great financial advisor, and maybe even on the regulatory yes. or 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 the employment side of things. Right, tell people as you don't want to tell them what they want to hear; tell them what they need to hear. Uh, and I think that's really. Uh, something that your firm has a great, great reputation of on the, from the hamburger law perspective and market counsel is just really thoughtful leadership and guidance. So I appreciate all the great insights that you shared today. And then, you know, several decades of just great advice you've given to our peers in the industry.
1: Oh, thanks. It's uh, I've always admired uh, you, the work you've done, and uh, was always hoping to get an invite to uh, to the podcast. So thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, buddy. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks for listening to the Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can. Advisors associated with Stratus Wealth Partners may be either one registered representatives with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA/SIPC, and investment advisor representatives of Stratus Wealth Partners, or two solely investment advisor representatives of Stratus Wealth Partners and not affiliated with LPL Financial. Investment advice offered through Stratus Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor, and separate entity from LPL Financial.